Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA. Episode 143 for the week ending February 22, 2019, the London Homesick Blues Edition. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitor is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 750 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. This episode is dedicated to Sam Rubenfeld, who has moved on from the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. We have several stories we'll take a look at today. Ethispheres announced its 2019 World's Most Ethical Company Awards. Fresenius has announced a pending FCPA resolution. The Serious Fraud Office in the United Kingdom has closed its investigations into GSK and Rolls-Royce individuals. We take a look at what new industries are under FCPA scrutiny. We consider the uh, win at the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals from the BioRad General Counsel of his whistleblower award against his former employer. We consider the intersection of supply chain and security and what are the dangers of a general counsel shirking their FCPA duties. We take a consideration of the intersection of sports and compliance by looking at Robert Kraft and Zion Williamson. We honor Jim DeLoach for being named a 2019 Betty Steed Award winner. Finally, we give our remembrances and a few remarks about Sam Rubenfeld and what he has meant to the compliance profession in his job at the Wall Street Journal. Thanks, Sam. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, back with Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors, for This Week in FCPA, episode 144 for the week ending, March 1, 2019, the Farewell to Sam edition. I have returned from London to find that Sam Rubenfeld has announced his departure from the Wall Street Journal, uh, Risk and Compliance, Journal via Twitter. Uh, so with that uh, sad news, Jay, uh, first of all, welcome. Thanks, Tom. Good to have you back on the other side of the Atlantic, uh, home in a reasonable time zone where we can get together and do a podcast. Absolutely. So um, I forgot to say we're dedicating this episode to Sam Rubenfeld, a reporter at the Wall Street Journal. So with that, Jay, we're going to conclude our podcast today with some of our reflections on Sam and his career there. But uh, they had some we had some really interesting stories this week. So why don't we just jump right into it? Uh, Ethisphere announced its 2019 World's Most Ethical Company Awards. And uh, as you might guess from that title, uh, it comes out annually, and um, there are 128 companies from around the world on this list, hailing from 21 countries and 50 different industries. Uh, multiple winners have, uh, are uh, multiple companies, I should say, have been on the award platform uh, for over 10 years now. And this includes Aflac, Fleur, International Paper, Milliken, PepsiCo, Ecolab, KO, and Texas Instruments. 
Some companies drop off and some uh, go back on. Uh, we don't know the uh, the reason of it all. The report will be discussed at Ethosphere's Global Ethics Summit, which is happening uh, now in two weeks in New York City. But here's the part I'd like to emphasize, Jay, because this is what has struck me since I've started uh, following uh, the world's most ethical uh, award honorees. They consistently outperform the Standard & Poor's 500 index. Um, this year, it shows a ethical premium of over 10%. And that, to me, really drives home the message that you and I have, I think, known anecdotally for many years, yet perhaps there was not as much evidence, which is companies that have more robust ethics and compliance programs uh, are more profitable. They are better run and, at the end of the day, more profitable. And Ethosphere now has uh, evidence or, or information and evidence since 2007 on this. So there's a large body that they can draw from to show this. And it really just, like I said, drives home that message. And for the naysayers out there who say compliance is a cost center, this is something they need to take a very serious look at because it demonstrates, uh, based on an evidentiary basis, not anecdotally, that not only are companies that have more robust ethics and compliance programs better places to work, but they're run more efficiently and indeed more profitably. So uh, in the show notes, we link to a little article from our friend uh, Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance at Radical Compliance. And I, I'd like to tie this up with a quip. He says, uh, looking at the graph of the three-year ethics premium, he says, uh, one can't help but notice, however, to see the dip in the green bar about one quarter of the way inward from February of 2016 when the ethical premium turned negative. Would that have happened around November 16, or rather November 2016? And Mac goes on to wonder if anything in particular happened that month that some might call a step backward for ethics. That was, that's one of the things that Matt makes Matt go. Um, uh, next up, I've got, I guess, is this one of the, must be one of the last uh, stories written by Sam from uh, Wall Street Journal risk and compliance about German dialysis firm uh, Fresenius. And uh, Fresenius Medical Care AG, which is uh, a provider of dialysis services, last week announced in a regulatory filing that it had reached an agreement in principle with U.S. authorities regarding a long-running foreign bribery investigation that involved an anonymous whistleblower complaint. Fresenius has said the, in the filing that it received communications beginning in 2012 that had alleged conduct outside the U.S. that might vol violate the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. According to the documents reviewed by the Wall Street Journal, an anonymous whistleblower sent an email in, October, in April of 2012 to Fresenius. The tipster had alleged widespread bribery in Latin America. Uh, Rainer Runte, the company's chief compliance officer and a member of the board, replied within 24 hours saying he was launching an investigation. The tipster followed up again with a second email in August 2012 to Mr. Runte, who replied that he appreciated the opportunity you provided us to look into the matter described by you in detail, noting that he had already begun the investigation. Uh, for seniors, has said in the filing that it is recorded at 224 million euros, 
which translates to $253.9 million in charges as the company negotiated with the government over a potential settlement. It also said the company is implementing enhancements to its program. So this is uh, probably going to be one of the first big cases that we've had in the hopper for a while that should see some resolution. Uh, it would appear sometime in this month of March. Uh, next up, Tom, what is happening back on the other side of the pond with uh, GSK and Rolls-Royce. So, Jay, the UK Serious Fraud Office and SFO Director Lisa Osofsky released a statement earlier this week uh, indicating they were ending their investigations into individuals for those companies. In a statement, Osofsky said there was either insufficient evidence to provide a realistic prospect of a conviction or it is not in the public interest to bring a prosecution in these cases. What's so uh, either troubling or head-scratching about this announcement, Jay, is, of course, uh, both Rolls-Royce and GSK paid uh, fines and penalties and admitted to wrongdoing that put them in the top 10 of not FCPA prosecutions, but of international anti-corruption enforcement uh, enforcements of all time. Uh, Rolls-Royce was uh, just under $900 million, I believe, at $890 million total fines and penalties paid to the United States, Brazil, and the vast majority to the United Kingdom. GlaxoSmithKline, GSK, was assessed a $494 million fine by a Chinese court for massive bribery and corruption inside the country of China. The Chinese enforcement action was based upon violation of domestic Chinese law, not UK Bribery Act or the uh, United States Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Uh, GSK also paid a $20 million fine to the Securities and Exchange Commission here in the United States. Uh, what's so uh, troubling slash head-scratching is how on earth could companies have uh, basically pled out and gotten, uh, in GSK's case, they were found guilty at trial. In the uh, Rolls-Royce case, they took a DPA, and there be no individual prosecutions. We should note to add, further add to your head scratching and or troubledness that the Department of Justice prosecuted five individuals around the Rolls-Royce uh, bribery schemes. Uh, how on earth could the SFO uh, not find evidence of bribery? Um, the Depar uh, Deferred Prosecution Agreement, which Rolls-Royce uh, uh, obtained in England, uh, the judge specifically noted that there were uh, individuals and evidence of individual uh, corruption. So kind of why not there in China, there were actually four GSK employees who were found guilty at trial. Uh, they were Chinese business unit employees. Uh, you have to wonder who they were reporting to at the corporate home office and why none of those people uh, were prosecuted. Nevertheless, uh, the SFO uh, closed their investigations uh, you also have to think about, you know, what's the future of DPAs in the United Kingdom? Uh, why on earth would a company sign a DPA if the SFO doesn't even have the uh, hootspot to take individuals uh, to trial after they've been given all the evidence? So either a troubling decision or a head-scratching decision. I don't know uh, which way you might want to go on it, but uh, there it is. I was uh, at Disneyland with the crew last week, and we were on uh, the Alice in Wonderland ride, or as uh, my daughter Millie always used to say, Wonderland and Alice. But uh, as Alice said to the uh, White Rabbit, curiouser and curiouser. 
Uh, next up, we've got an article from Law360. Uh, unfortunately, it's behind their portal, but hopefully you'll be able to find a copy of this. This is from our colleagues, uh, David Shakin and Kurt Wolf over at Troutman Sanders. So I think if you go to their website, you should be able to find it. And they take a look at potential new FCPA enforcement targets coming into focus. And their um, thesis is basically, in the past, we've seen uh, very tried and true FCPA industries that come on the radar each year, oil and gas, which is big in Houston, manufacturing, life sciences, and pharma. But uh, Kurt and David take a look at some new areas where they feel FCPA enforcement will be ramped up in the coming year. Uh, first, they start off with uh, sports sporting bodies. So whether that's the NCAA or FIFA or any type of sporting organization, uh, one of the things that they uh, mentioned in the article is that there are possible immigration charges that can be brought against Caribbean and Latin American companies who basically uh, change the dates on players' passports so they appear to be younger and can get signed at uh, higher rates when they come to the U.S. Uh, next, they took a look at consulting and professional services firms. Uh, specifically, they look at McKinsey and companies hiring of relatives of several high-ranking Saudi Arabian government officials at a time when the firm was advising the Saudi Arabian government. This sounds a lot like the uh, princeling cases that we had with several investment banks over the past two years. There could be potential issues with colleges and universities that either bring over uh, visiting professors or also deal with foreign governments. Uh, next bu bucket would be manufacturers and new entrants. And this would be uh, smaller manufacturing concerns that, although they're not publicly traded, definitely fall under the uh, jurisdiction of the FCPA. And they need to make sure now that as they are part of global supply chains that they are in compliance with the FCPA. And this might be something that these companies have never done because they're privately traded companies. Uh, they're private companies. They're not publicly traded. And uh, an example they give of that was the recent Cognizant case where both the chief legal officer and the CEO made payments uh, in India to get permitting moving again. So uh, looking ahead, they, they guess that, uh, not they guess, but they surmise that anti-corruption compliance efforts have continued to mature at traditional targets like publicly traded companies and the industries we spoke about. And there's thinking that uh, FCPA enforcement is going to be thinking a little bit outside the box. So again, if you're in any of these industries that we discussed, it would be a great time to look at your internal policies and procedures. Uh, next up, Tom, why don't you tell us about the BioRad whistleblower? So uh, this was a Court of Appeals ruling of Federal District Court, excuse me, Federal Court of Appeals for California, the uh, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, this involved former BioRad Laboratory uh, General Counsel Sanford, Sandy Wadler, who was terminated in 2013 for poor performance. Um, he uh, sued under uh, both state, California state and federal whistleblower law that he was uh, dismissed in retaliation for reporting conduct that he reasonably believed to be illegal. 
He won a stunning verdict at trial of $11 million, um, including actual damages and uh, punitive damages, uh, really in large part for one, uh, I think, one clear reason, Jay, and that the, the company claimed he uh, his job performance was poor, and they cited a critical evaluation of his job performance that uh, bore the name of the CEO of the company and dated before the fire, firing. However, at trial, it turned out that not only had the date been falsified, the CEO didn't write it, and it was created one month after he was fired. And as I tell people, if you have to create a, a personnel review to justify a firing after it's happened, uh, you will lose not 100 out of 100 times at trial, 1 million out of 1 million times at trial. So it really didn't surprise me that the company lost at trial. The problem they had, Jay, was really twofold. First of all, the decision was before um, the uh, U.S. Uh, Supreme Court decision, which held that retaliation under um, Dodd-Frank, uh, those damages were not available unless you reported to the SEC. And and digital realty trust case, the um, and Wadler did not report to the SEC. He reported internally. However, uh, through a um, convoluted at best analysis by the Court of Appeals, uh, they sort of waved past that. And I, w- I don't want to go into the convolution of that, but it's uh, as you suggested a little bit earlier, curiouser and curiouser. However. Uh, he also uh, sustained or received a large part of his judgment from a California state and a retaliation law. So those damages were all upheld. So we have a 3-0 decision. Uh, I, I don't think it's going to be appealable to the U.S. Supreme Court. One, I don't think there's grounds for appeal. But two, as everyone knows, you have to. Uh, it's a discretionary appeal to the Supreme Court. I cannot imagine the Supreme Court would take this case. So... Um, for whistleblowers nationwide, this is a huge victory, Jay. Uh, to sustain uh, these types of damages at trial, it really shows not only the the power of someone going to trial on a whistleblower claim, but also the danger for a company. Uh, and when a company engages in the, the fraud of of creating a document and then backdating it and putting the CEO's name on it, that's uh, that's very very. Uh, bad in front of a jury, but uh, a really interesting case, and it also shows that uh, general counsel uh, counsels are protected by whistleblowers law, whistleblower laws, both at the state and federal level. So uh, next up, we've got another interesting client alert brought to us through Law 360. It's from our colleagues Michael Mason, Robert Taylor, and Stacy Hedeka over at Hogan Levels. And um, basically, the article is entitled Advancing the Dialogue About Supply Chain Risks. And this is something you and I have been speaking, thinking about over the past couple of weeks. We uh, spoke together on a panel at Ascent Supply Chain Conference in San Diego. And uh, basically, in June 2018, the House Armed Services Committee hearing 
the U.S. Department of Defense announced its, quote, Deliver Uncompromised initiative, which aims to establish security as a fourth pillar in acquisition on par with cost, schedule, and performance, and to create incentives for the industry to embrace security, not as a cost center, but as a key differentiator. And in this piece, the uh, three Three attorneys aim to further the important dialogue between contractors and the DOD, and it's clear that aerospace and defense contractors uh, need to bolster their existing program to ensure that supply chain integrity or possibly the readying uh, the reading their existing programs for examination and review by the DOD. Contractors who can demonstrate to the DOD that they have a robust supply chain integrity program in place could differentiate themselves for competitors. And when you're, whenever you're talking within the supply chain, you might know who your vendors are, but you don't know who your vendors' vendors are. And I think this is very interesting, especially in light of what's happening with 5G and Huawei across the globe, that you have a lot of different companies who are basically punting and going to Huawei to have them uh, roll out their 5G. And I think that creates an extreme security risk. And uh, it's just very interesting about uh, where things lie now within this initiative. And I think the authors are right that if you can show that you have uh, the critical information about members within your supply chain, you can definitely uh, get yourself a competitive advantage uh, competing under the Deliver Uncompromised initiative. So uh, I referred to Cognizant a couple minutes ago, Tom, and now we've got an article from Law360 about Cognizant case offers GC's warning on shirking of the FCPA. Yeah, Jay, uh, you really hit uh, hit on this one a little bit earlier. And uh, just as a reminder, first of all, uh, article by Michelle Gorman at Law 360, that uh, <clears throat> general counsel uh, have to be a part of the compliance solution. They cannot be a part of the bribery scheme. I don't think that's new, but it, it really, for me, also uh, demonstrated the difference between the compliance function and the general counsel's office. Although here we had the general counsel alleged to have been actively involved in the bribery scheme in question. Clearly, the general counsel was not uh, up to doing the job of compliance. He shouldn't have been overseeing compliance and was not part of, uh, should not have been part of his remit as he appears to be constitutionally incapable of actually uh, fulfilling his obligations uh, for uh, compliance under the FCPA. So a great reminder and uh, something that uh, we all need to uh, continue to remember. Uh, the lawyers and uh, are equally or can be equally liable for FCPA violations. So uh, next up, we got a couple pieces that Tom wrote this week. Uh, hashtag, it just exploded in Ben Franklin, and then Robert Kraft, the NFL, and compliance. And I'm wondering if it's coincidence whether or not I get to talk about these two. Uh, first one we're talking about is what will probably be the NBA's first pick, Zion Williamson in a very high-profile game um, with Duke playing North Carolina, only 33 seconds into Duke's game on national TV. Uh, basically, he pivoted and his shoe just exploded uh, as a result of Nike shoe failure. 
Williams sustained a level one knee sprain. He left the game and did not return. And at this point, it's not known if he will return to play again for Duke this year. So he will recover from this industry and he will probably be the uh, prospective number one um, pick in the draft. But here's the key part where we're talking about um, social responsibility and also talking about uh, brand awareness and perception. The Nike stocky the Nike stock price took a 1% hit the next day with approximately 17 billion with a B in value disappearing. The hashtag it just exploded has trended on Twitter since then. To say that Nike is real would be an understatement, as Aaron Goldman writing in Adweek said. After all, the faint and reputation of shoe brands rests heavily on the star sponsor as it does on product quality. Uh, Tom goes on to um, speak about that uh, the shoe that um, Williamson was wearing, who's 285 pounds, was actually designed for Paul George, who's weighs in at a svelte 220. So basically, uh, they were saying that uh, he should have been wearing a more heavy-duty shoe, something like LeBron. And, um, you know, this just really goes to show that this is something uh, I don't know if Nike could have prepared for, but with news traveling so quickly and, uh, you know, brand identity being able to be tarnished so quickly, it's just a cautionary tale. Along those lines, we have uh, Robert Kraft, a billionaire, one of the most successful uh, owners in the NFL and influential, uh, got caught up in uh, a sting operation in Florida. It unfortunately has to deal with human trafficking. And um, this, uh, I guess, you know, my take on this is, uh, Mr. Kraft has been a very philanthropic man. Uh, he's been in- involved with the NFL, with the players' associations. But again, it just goes to show you that one bad decision can negatively impact on a brand or a man's life and good works. Um, furthermore, this is going to potentially have um, prosecution issues with the NFL. Uh, Mr. Kraft may need to step uh, behind uh, the organization and let his son, Jonathan Kraft, run it. And it also could potentially impact whether or not he gets into the um, NFL Hall of Fame. So, um, you know, we do not have to create these stories. They happen on a daily basis. So as a firm or as a as a company, you need to always be vigilant about your brand. And then you also have to be able to. uh step into the breach when something like this happens. Tom, anything you wanted to add on, on your two, um, two pieces? No, Jay, the, uh, if I could go back to the, uh, Zion Williamson, Nike matter, I, I want to make clear that there's no evidence of uh, bribery and corruption or unethical business practices, which led to the uh, shoe exploding. What I found really questionable on Nike's part was their response. And I thought it was tepid at best. Basically, uh, gosh, we're sorry and we're looking into it. Um, I recognize Zion Williamson is not a signed Nike sponsor. He is playing for Duke. He can't be paid under the archaic rules of the NCAA. Uh, you know, so perhaps he's just a 
unfortunate user of their shoe product. But part of compliance is it's prevent, detect, and remediate. And you have to be ready, and that really ties into the uh, shirking duties of the GC article, because as a compliance practitioner, as a compliance functionary, as a chief compliance officer, if you find a problem and a pro- or a problem presents itself, you have to fix it. Don't say we're looking into it. Uh, don't say we're, you know, sorry. Get in there and fix it so that it doesn't happen again. Because if it does happen again, in Nike's case, it's going to be disastrous, um, certainly if it happens this year and if it happens to Zion Williamson again. So uh, part of your job as a compliance practitioner is to be able to respond, even if it's outside business ethics, as this clearly is, or at least it appears to be. So um, I really thought that message was important uh, in that case. Uh, Jim, uh, excuse me, (laughs) Jim, uh, Jay, uh, I would like to uh, announce to both you and our listeners that uh, Providi's Jim Deloach has been named Uh, in our final news And our final news, that Jim Deloach has been named the recipient of the 2019 Betty Steed Leadership Award by the Greater Houston Business and Ethics Roundtable. Jim, uh, is uh, this award is given annually to a person in Houston who has really contributed the most to compliance and ethics and business ethics, and Jim Deloach is certainly that. I wrote about it and blogged about it. Uh, I'm going to post some information on our awards dinner, which will be held May 16th here in Houston at McCormick and Schmitz in uptown Houston. So if you're in town, I hope you can join uh, join us for that event. So we're through all the news. And uh, now, uh, true to the title of our episode, we're going to share some remembrances about Sam Rubenfeld and the Wall Street Journal. Uh, did you want to start that off, Tom? Sure. Uh, so um, <clears throat> if you don't know Sam Rubenfeld, you should. Uh, he's one of the literally the country's top compliance and ethics reporters. He has been at the Wall Street Journal now. Um, well, I can't remember how long, but he started when he started his journalism career. He started with a journal and he started with a risk and compliance journal. So he was literally there at the beginning. He was part of the group, the initial team uh, that started it. Joe Palazzo, uh, Chris Matthews, uh, Ben DiPietro uh, and, and Sam were part of the original team. And so he's really grown up in this space, and I've got to watch him, Jay, really mature as a journalist. And his writing uh, now is uh, is first rate. His stuff is great. Uh, this week, he had an amazing article in the journal outside the realm of compliance and ethics about the last surviving prosecutor from the Nuremberg trials, uh, a 90-plus-year-old uh, prosecutor living in New York City who uh, is still uh, fighting for justice. Uh, and it was obviously a passion piece by Sam, uh, uh, or one of his passions. So, um, uh, his writing has just really, uh, grown. The second thing is Sam's use of Twitter. Uh, I don't know if he was an early adopter of Twitter, uh, but he is one of the people who uses Twitter not only the most, but also the best that I, I've seen around. He announced his retirement on Twitter. I mean, who does that? Uh, well, Sam Rubenfeld did that. And he retweets uh, everything about the journal. He literally has a second computer screen next to his main terminal. And somehow or another, while he's working during the day, uh, he can retweet your tweet 
uh, within uh, the fastest he's done it with me is 0.3 seconds. So uh, he has mastered the use of Twitter. It's been a huge boon for the journal, for the risk and compliance journal that Sam has written for, and I think the greater compliance community. So uh, kind of shout out to Sam for uh, Sam for his use of Twitter. And finally, you know, Sam's become a good friend of mine. And uh, uh, when I'm in New York, I always try to uh, have a drink or a cup of coffee with Sam. Sometimes we can uh, share break bread and share a lunch, but uh, he, he is incredibly knowledgeable. He has a breadth and scope of interest that is just uh, fascinating, all the way from um, the current punk rock scene uh, to uh, history to politics. And uh, I've had some great conversations uh, with Sam over the years, and uh, he's really been a great friend. So, Tom, I think you're right. It's almost a changing of the guards, and I just – started to think back when you mentioned Chris Matthews and Ben and Sam and, you know, and initially uh, FCPA stuff would get reported in the FCPA blog or there'd be individual folks like yourself or Mike Volkov or Matt Kelly when he was at Compliance Week. But Sam's really been there, like you said, since the inception. And when this stuff gets covered daily in the Wall Street Journal, and it's not one or two articles, but there are several different areas of interest that the journal looks into and that Sam writes about. It really shows that this is mission-critical stuff that every company should be looking at, and it's still, you know, to get back to that head-scratching that we talked about before, I don't know how people can, you know, not know about what their duties are. And when we see whistleblowers getting uh, fired for, for unjust causes and we see people papering over mistakes that they've made, it's just like, how can they continue on doing this? So we do not know where Sam is going, but we, uh, we know it's going to be someplace interesting. And uh, Tom, maybe when he lands, you can get the scoop. Well, maybe we could have him as a guest on our podcast, Jay. An emergency podcast. <laughs> so, Jay, uh, I think uh, the literal uh, cultural uh, illuminate of affiliated monitors are going to be celebrating Mardi Gras next week. Did I have that wrong? Uh, no, that is correct. We will be in NOLA, New Orleans, Louisiana, uh, from the 6th until the 8th for the ABA White Collar Crime Conference. Uh, my colleagues Vin DeCiani and uh, Don Stern will be there. And uh, since the conference starts on Wednesday, we need to fly in on Tuesday, which for those people who took French 101, Mardi Gras, Tuesday, Fat Tuesday. So uh, I will uh, let you know how many... Uh, how many beads I collect, and uh, maybe I can give you a report uh, next weekend on uh, what transpired at the EBA White Collar Crime Conference. I had a great uh, series of recordings I did with Jonathan Armstrong last week in London, and so I've reposted these as a series of podcasts this week live from London, and unlike most of my podcasts, these are all uh, video uh, shorts, uh, so they play great on your computer. Uh, check them out. In part one, I took a look at customers emerging as corruption risks. Part two, the state of compliance in 2019. 
Number three, the Cognizant Technology FCPA Declination. And part four, Regime Change and Compliance. They're all available on multiple sites. Uh, they're relatively short, uh, 10 to 12 minutes each. Uh, Jay, I'd also like to uh, put out that Navex Global is putting on a virtual masterclass entitled Ethics Beyond Compliance Retaliation. It's going to be Thursday, March 14th at 2019. They've got a great lineup of multiple persons for this masterclass. It's uh, kind of pivoting or not pivoting, but picking up on their uh, virtual uh, compliance uh, summit that they held in November. So I'm really looking forward to this. We've got, it's free, uh, should I say, once again, it's free, but we've got information on the registration and agenda in our show notes. So if uh, you really like some information, this would be a, a great resource for you. And kudos to Navex Global for putting out uh, quality information, once again, that it's free. So uh, if you'd like to get in touch with either Tom or myself, uh, Tom can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com, and I can be reached at the initial J Rosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. So on behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, J Rosen, Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for spending some time looking at the week in FCPA, episode 144, for the week ending March 1st, 2000. 2019, the farewell to Sam edition. Sam, good luck. And uh, as Tom and I said, maybe you can join us for an emergency podcast when you can tell us where you landed. Thanks, everybody. Have a great weekend. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode that we've uh, dedicated to Sam Rubenfeld. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can reach J.J. Rosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I hope you'll join us again next week where Jay and I take a look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. If you're going to be at the White Collar Conference in New Orleans, I hope you will take a look or look up Jay and the Affiliated Monitors team. I'm going to be at PodFest in Orlando. So if you happen to be listening to this podcast and you're going to be at PodFest in Orlando, uh, let's get together for a cup of coffee. This is Tom Fox. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.